Hi there. You're listening to season two of A Drink With Detroit. My name is Hilary Sachuk, and I'm the host and founder of adrinkwith.com. On A Drink With, we sit down with industry leaders and share their inspiring success stories. Whether it's a coffee or a beer, our relaxed atmosphere allows our guests to get comfortable and open up in thoughtful and unexpected ways. Whether you're from Detroit or not, you can't deny that what's happening in the city is history in the making. Just think about it. Brands like Ford and Motown Sound not only shape Detroit, they shape the world. In the 1930s, it was the fastest growing city in the world. The middle class started in Detroit. The city breeds innovation. In true Detroit fashion, our guests have stories of grit, perseverance, and have found themselves in a moment where they had to pick themselves up and move forward. We guarantee you'll find inspiration and be motivated listening to the visionaries, future leaders, and risk takers who are making a direct impact on not just the community here, but the world. This season, we're partnering with Goodwill Industries of Greater Detroit. You're probably familiar with their stores that feature donated, gently used clothing and household items, but they also provide skilled labor to businesses and help adults who have a hard time getting or keeping a job and give them the skills to lead a productive life. Goodwill wants to make sure that every neighborhood of Detroit experiences the kind of renaissance that we're seeing in downtown and midtown and that every boat rises with the rising tide. We're excited to welcome Jessica McCall, the VP of Marketing and External Affairs at Goodwill Detroit, as our special co-host. Goodwill is asking the question, what's good Detroit, and wants to hear from you. Join the conversation on social by using the hashtag, what's good Detroit, when you come across anything that inspires you or moves you in the city. Our conversation was recorded in the Foundation Studio at Detroit Foundation Hotel, our official studio host. The studio is located within the beautiful boutique hotel that used to be the Detroit Fire Department headquarters and the former Pontchartrain Wine Cellars, making it the perfect spot for a drink. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us for another drink. Our next guest was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame this year. She co-wrote September by Earth, Wind & Fire, and her music has sold over 60 million records. The one and only Allie Willis meets us for coffee at the Detroit Foundation Hotel. Allie grew up in Detroit. She hung out on the Motown stoop and could hear the music through the walls. Self-taught and untrained, it was Motown that shaped her. I always do my research before I get a drink with someone. As soon as I heard this next quote, I knew we'd have a lot to talk about. Allie said, truly being successful is figuring out who you are and living your life that way. In interviews, she talks about how if you have a vision, just go for it. Before I even met her, I felt a connection. Just like the city of Detroit, she is self-made, not afraid to do things her way, and her spirit is contagious. Pour yourself a cup of coffee and join us for a conversation you can't find anywhere else. Cheers, Cheers guys. <laughs> Cheers. Mm. I hope it's not too hot. No, it's good. I, I did put a little too much sugar. Now, Something are you like always, this. do you do caffeine at all, or are you always decaf? Or is I um, pretty much always decaf because I don't notice the difference between them. Mm. I'm okay. like speedy. You have enough energy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So, you know, as I was just refreshing my memory of like the long list of like of your accomplishments 60 million records sold the songwriters hall of fame which congratulations congratulations the write-up in like the new york times you're emmy nominated um gosh grammy winning grammy winning and nominated and nominated uh the the tony yeah, I mean, you can just... Are you an EGOT yet? <laughs> no, and you really, you have to win all of those gotcha. to actually be right, it. Right, right. But we, um, 
And the Emmy uh, didn't win. The theme to Friends, which I wrote, lost to the theme from Star Trek Voyagers. Oh, wow. Like, Like, sing that to me. Who remembers that? No one. Yeah. (laughs) And then the the Tony, my show Mm -hmm. won. But oddly enough, the writers who created the show do not get the Tony. The producers do. Interesting. So, um... Uh, so those two are really only nominations. Grammy, uh, one win, a couple losses. Webby, I won. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, uh, but Color Purple, we are making our uh, show into a movie. So Ooh. we're going to write one new song because we are going for You're that. You're making it. To, okay, yeah. so I have to tell you, the Color Purple... The, the story, and I followed it from the book to the movie. Ah, uh, great! Yeah, the the play um, was like one of the most moving things of my childhood. Like it is the best. It's an unbelievable story. It's an story. unbelievable story, yeah. and I've always. Which version loved it. of the musical did you see? Like I when did saw you... it in Washington D.C. Um, at the Kennedy Center, which means the original version. Yes, with Fantasia. Put that out of your mind. Though okay. she was fantastic. Okay, <laughs> but the um, it, the show was reconceived. Nothing oh, changed as okay. far as music or lyrics. Right. Maybe sixteen bars of music eliminated. Ten minutes of dialogue. But the uh, director, John Doyle, stripped everything out of it. So basically no set, no costume changes, nothing. Went from 161 costume changes to seven, all of which happened in the last 15 minutes. Um, He just stripped it down so that all you concentrate on are music, lyrics, dialogue, Mm -hmm. characters. And the show exploded. Wow. Even the New York Times, the the uh, the critic, uh, Ben Brantley, mm-hmm. um, did what he's never done before, which is he rescinded his original review and re-reviewed the show just based on the new direction. Wow. So, and we feel like it's, although we uh, loved and were excited and everything by the original version... This one really reflects more of what we had in our heads. Mm, sure. Because we, we wrote it to be raw, in your face. Yeah. Right. Funny. Right. Uh, which no one is expecting to laugh during the color purple, but we make sure and, yeah. you know, get one in every few minutes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so go see it. It's, I will. it's about to go to Washington, D.C. Is it? Okay. Or it's there. Okay. Yeah. It's the end of the tour. And the tour is a lot of the original Broadway cast okay. of, of this uh, 2015 right. version. I absolutely will go see it. Good. Thank you. So here's All my right. question. Is this something, because I've been sp- spending a lot of time thinking about like manifesting like my desires and dreams. Is this something, is your career something you manifested from the start? And did you always know that you were going to make it? Um I always prayed I would make it. I still don't think I've made it. I mean, I'm still I'm still not doing what it is I think I'm capable of doing. But as far as the manifesting, yeah, because I literally do not know how to do anything I do. And none of it. I don't know um, how to write music. And I write the music and the lyrics. Can't play. Can't read music. Uh, in art, I had sold over a thousand paintings before someone told me that you mix colors together to get other colors because I would go to the same art store for like 10 years right. and bitch that they didn't have a certain color, certain shade of pink. 
<laughs> and the, this poor woman who for 10 years has been saying no said, Allie, you do know that you mix colors to get other colors. And it was like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> so, and, and, and it changed the way I was doing everything because all of a sudden I Your had a trillion right. colors to work with. Um, so, yeah, uh, Color Purple, I hated musical theater. Just never saw it, saw maybe three, four shows in my whole life, mostly like um, high school musicals or right. dinner theater. Um, no desire to do it, but it was the color purple. So I am not turning that down. I, it was the greatest experience of my life. But still, people say, well, what have you seen since your show has opened on Broadway? And this is the God's truth. The color purple. That, you know, so I really, I honestly do not know how to do anything I do. So I think it is sheer force of will. And then I think you get to a certain age and you've had enough hits. And then people go, oh, she can do anything. Uh -huh. But really, truth is, she can do nothing. Right. So would you say that you just would say yes to opportunities and figure it out? I would get uh, bored very quickly, probably because I didn't know mm. what I was doing. So um, <laughs> people offering me um, things. I, I, my career really has been a, a, just circumstances. Like, I bump into someone. Have you ever blah, blah, blah. Like, I... Um, when I was painting and I was also doing sculptures and, again, not knowing how to do any of this, I ended up sitting next to someone at a dinner party uh, who said, have you ever art directed before? Which was something, this was like mid-80s, mid to late 80s. And I always wanted to do that, always wanted to build sets and right. everything. And just happened to be sitting next to this guy you know, have you ever art directed? No. Uh, he was directing a Debbie Harry video that weekend. They needed a place to shoot, and he knew about my house. And he said, if you let us shoot there, you'll get art direction credit. And then I ended up doing all his videos for, mm -hmm. like, the next two years, and he was a huge video director. So, um, but again, had I not gone to that dinner party, I may have never, you know, been able to do sets, which... Sure was one of my favorite things I ever did because it was so much of it. And, I, you know, usually I would just have, like, two days to a week, and I would build everything. I wasn't someone who went out and shopped in stores. I mean, if it needed a floor, I was the one installing the floor. Wow. I mean, right. everything. But it gave me a chance to do something larger than a canvas, you know. Right. But, um, but again, had no idea... So when you what, say you know, that you have, more, like, you're not even doing everything that you want to be doing, then what else is on your list? Because when I get an idea, I see it, I hear it, I feel it, you know, it, it is executing all of it as opposed to one piece of it. Mm -hmm. The problem with the art direction of the video sets, which where I did stop doing it, was that it never was to my music. So it would be to someone else's music, which was a great way for me to meet mm -hmm. artists and go on to work with them that I might not other ha have mm -hmm. if I was just a songwriter. But, uh, you know, you're working, you're doing all this work on a song that if it were mine, it would have changed to bar five, you mm -hmm. know? Right. Sure. Um, so I always knew the hole in my career was performing because if you were a performer, you had a stage, and the music could be yours, and the set could be yours, and the dialogue could be yours. But that uh, terrified me 
um, I had one album out, which was the first 10 songs I ever wrote. Came out in 1974. And they put me on tour. And I had never been on the stage before. I play, played a tree in second grade. No lines, <laughs> no movement. And I still got yelled at from the side of the stage by the mm-hmm. teacher because my costume, my mom had made, um, took a grocery bag and kind of like cut right. Christmas yeah. tree <laughs> shape yeah, yeah. into it. And, and then she painted it green, but it was so stiff. So every time I moved and I was shaking, I was so nervous on stage. And the tree would be making rustling noises, you know. <laughs> so my only stage experience was getting yelled at as a tree, basically. And they uh, put me out. Um, it, it was Epic Records, so Epic Columbia, yeah. which turned into Sony. Yeah. Um, my first performance was in front of 10,000 people. Wow. and. I was terrified. I never could remember lyrics anyway. Um, so I was just terrified about that. I spent all my time building the set, designing the costumes, and they um, had me opening for a folk singer. And, you know, I, this was an all-black band, every, all dressed as sequined vegetables. I mean, it made no <laughs> sense with who they put us with. So I was just on that stage thinking, like, hell no. It doesn't I am feel not right. Doing this shit. <laughs> yeah. So I did four performances. And the fourth performance, I had the same agent as Joni Mitchell. And so they wanted to book her at Ohio State. And, uh, so the agent said, well, you want Joni Mitchell, you take Allie Willis. So I assumed I'm opening for Joni Mitchell. And instead, uh, we drove all night. Um, Luther Vandross was one of my background singers. Everyone went on amazing. to be. I mean, it was an amazing band, if <laughs> I told amazing. you who these people were. <laughs> and we get there, and Joni is in, like, the big auditorium. And they booked us into the lunchroom. And they made like a little stage, like you could tell it was built that day. And there were three people in there eating hot dogs. And then in the back of the room, there was a psychology class. So every time we did a song, the professor would turn around and yell, you know, can you keep that racket down? So I thought, I am miserable. I'm never going to relax on stage. Yeah, right. What am I performing for hot dogs in a psychology class? So, um, it's a little bit of a bait and switch there. Yeah, in the middle of the uh, (laughs) instrumental of the sixth song, I jumped off the stage and walked out. And I thought, well, take a year. Maybe I could do like little clubs and I'll learn how to perform. And it took me 37 years. Because you're back on stage now. And it's my absolute favorite thing to do. But I realized I don't approach it as a singer-songwriter, because that still terrifies me. Can't memorize the lyrics, can't smoke marijuana, got to keep the voice in shape, not doing any of that. Um, But what I do do and my... What I think my number one skill is is party throwing. So I approach it as a party host. And then 
what do I have to do? I just have to make sure I'm fine right. and keep things going. Have That's a conversation. Anyway. Yeah, and yeah. they and, and everyone knows the songs I'm singing, so right. I do them as sing-alongs. I sit on stage. I'm texting. I'm like catching up, and <laughs> kind of the more that goes wrong because things do constantly go wrong. I have learned from my career. First of all, the stuff that goes wrong makes the funniest stories. Right. No one wants to hear how you, you know, you have the award and you put it on the mantle. You know, they want to hear how, you know, it fell off the thing and hit you on the head. And, you, you know, it's those are the stories. Right. So as soon as I realize I really should just be myself, mm. not be afraid if things go wrong. Don't worry, you know, if you don't sing it the way the singer on the record sings it. Um that changed everything. Sure. So I try and bring all my party throwing tricks to the stage, and now I have a great time. Okay, so two questions off of what you just said, because I wrote this down and you just said it. Um, you said that success means having a very blessed life and you get a chance to express yourself, with, which a lot of people don't have the opportunity to do. Mm-hmm. Truly being successful is figuring out who you are and living life that way. At what age did you really feel what did that click and you felt like you can say that um i don't know when i said that but that's pretty good um (laughs) (laughs) i uh, yeah made my notes i was like i like that (laughs) two well i had two separate epiphanies oh yeah spread Uh very far apart (laughs) one which was certainly before i felt successful but absolutely guided me through my life was when i was seven we would go to Miami Beach every year. You know, the, the Detroit Jewish migration would mm-hmm. be Miami Beach. Um, and I was standing at a drinking fountain, and uh, there was a door that kind of led out to the pool. And the do- I'm drinking, and the door opens, and these two little really thin blonde girls came in, my same age, maybe seven or eight. And they uh, were wearing... It was the first time I ever saw a two-piece bathing suit. <laughs> and um, I looked at them and I thought, I am, I'm never going to look like that. You know, that they're going to grow up to be like those blonde girls. Right. And that is never going to be me. And I made a decision at the drinking fountain that I could not let things like that pressure me. And I have thought about that 12 trillion times Wow, it's seven years old. Yeah, so at seven, I knew to try not to compare yourself to other people because it's not going to work. Right. And then um, in terms of actually feeling successful, that was not until after The Color Purple where I felt, okay, there's a piece of work that it's going to last. It's a meaningful story, more meaningful today than the years that it took place in. Um, and because it was something that it wasn't like a hit record that's going to be like massive for three months and today massive for three weeks. Stand the um, and then, yeah, and it, it, very few songs stand the test of time. Right. Um, and so if I'm going to be attached to that, that's always going to make me feel like a loser, basically. But after Color Purple, I felt like I... <laughs> there, there was something that was there. And it's um, Color Purple in particular, and every single cast says this, 
what you know, Broadway shows you you bond with the people in the shows, then the shows are over and right. you you know, only if you're in a show again together do you really see anyone. Color purple, everyone has such a sense of literally being chosen in a very spiritual mm. way for this role to be part of this story, which affects everyone's life that's ever been wow. attached right. to it. So it feels more substantial mm. than had I just written a happy Broadway musical. Yeah. You know, are you even though it is a happy Broadway musical. Are you a spiritual person? Um, I am not in the traditional sense. Um, uh, I think I believe everything that spiritual people believe. Um, absolutely not a Buddhist, but believe everything in there. Um, I This, for me, traces back to Earth, Wind & Fire. Because um, this was 1978, the beginning of the year, I was as close to being on welfare as you could be without actually being on it. I was getting food stamps, um, medical assistance, but you know, you're young, you're a songwriter. It's like th this is what you're. This is what is supposed to happen. You're a starving songwriter. Yeah. So it was still a glamorous life to me, but it was a very deprived. Chic. Right. You know, and um, <laughs> struggling. Artist. I um, mm -hmm. one of my uh, a, a couple people like Bonnie Raitt uh, had done a song of mine, but it had been four years okay. since then. Um, How and old are you at this point? Twenty. My she cut uh, my first song when I was twenty four. Okay, so you're twenty four. Food stamps. I'm one hundred thirty now. No, I'm <laughs> seventy now. So. <laughs> Um, she look amazing. <laughs> um, uh, and I get a couple records a year, but nothing. And even if it was a big singer, it wasn't it never was the single. And really, unless you got the single, right? What was there? Right. So, um, but then in very rapid su uh, succession, uh, Patti LaBelle heard some songs of mine. She flew me up um, to where she was recording in San Francisco. Gave me money to go in the studio and at least make some demos because I, I did, couldn't even, you know, get that together. And she told me that uh, one of her friends was also up recording in the studio and he needed lyrics. Would I go right with them? And I, even though I did a lot of it, really didn't like just doing lyrics. It's, you know, you're, it's, if you also write music, it's not a very organic way, you okay. know, of doing it. Right. And also, I thought, well, she brought me up here, and she obviously brought another person up here. I want to be with the star. I don't want to be, like, with the friend. <laughs> so I avoided going into the Studio B, where she said he was, uh, for two days. How did you? You just kind of... Just, just didn't do it. <laughs> just, you know, wouldn't go that way down the hall, wouldn't, like, do anything. Are you sure you're not a millennial? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Didn't do it. Yeah, no, I have many of those habits. <laughs> right. So um, anyway, so the third day I'm there and I'm in the hallway and the door to Studio B opens. The guy comes out and I go, oh, shit, I am not doing this. So the bathroom was right there. So I go into the bathroom, had to pee anyway, go sit on the toilet. And the next thing I know, the door opens and um, I hear clump, 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 and then these two male feet 
shoved under the stall, and he literally traps me. And just as Patty says, you know, you're a great writer, and come into Studio B. And that's that was it. So I thought, okay, got to do it. Went into the studio. He had, like, all this. You could tell they had, like, a trillion songs. There were more keyboards than I had ever seen before. This, you know, this was 1978, very early synth days. Right. So I knew something was going on, but, you know, she never told me his name, you know, nothing. So he immediately just said, okay, we're starting on this. And we wrote a song and a half before he got a phone call and I really had a chance to just sit there and look at him and I went, holy shit, it's Herbie Hancock. Oh, wow. And that's why all the keyboards were there. Right. So between Patty and Herbie and a a friend of mine sleeping with someone in Earth, Wind & Fire, (laughs) this led to Earth, Wind & Fire and they had heard about me from Patty and Herbie. Um... And I started writing with Verdeen White, mm-hmm. you know, bass player to this day, a right. uh, great bass player and uh, founding member of the group. And he said to me, I'm going to tell my brother Maurice about you. And I thought, well, that's, that's not really possible because they were my absolute favorite yeah. group. Just every record was completely different from the last. The musicianship was great. The grooves were great. And sure enough, a few nights later, the phone rang, and it was Maurice White, and all he said to me was, is this Allie Willis? I said, yes. He said, do you want to write the whole next Earth, Wind & Fire album with me? Didn't ask me to write a song, nothing. So I went in the next day, almost thinking it was a prank. And September, we started within like five minutes of meeting, and, you know, it changed my life. Right. So, um, you know, and, the, and September was written for Greatest Hits Volume 1. They needed a new single for that. And mm. then the entire I Am album, except for two songs, ultimately, uh, that Boogie Wonderland was on, mm-hmm. um, you know, did all of that. And then life completely changed. But getting back to the question I didn't answer about spiritual... <sighs> I'm so lost in the story, I forgot what I even asked. <laughs> the, um, uh, the very first thing he said to me was, what do you know about Eastern philosophies? Huh. Because their music is very much based on Eastern philosophies. Lyrically, their songs are very different from a normal pop right. soul song. Um, literally, I had no idea what he was talking about. Like, never even heard. What is an Eastern philosophy? So he gave me a list Google of... Google it either on your phone. No, you need a book. No. <laughs> so he gave me a list of books, and he sent me to a store in L.A. called The Bodhi Tree, which was... You could, like, smell the incense, literally, from blocks away. And it was the only spiritual bookstore right. in L.A., so it was kind of spooky walking in, but it's like, what, am I not going to do Earth, Wind, and Fire? <laughs> so I bought the books. It scrambled my brain. Did had no idea what any of these terms were, you know, anything. But um, really studied everything. So without me knowing it, I did become a very spiritual person, Uh, And that awareness only increased over the years. And I asked him years later, like, why did you choose me? Because I didn't, Mm. A, know what the fuck you were talking about. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like I had any hits. I mean, I knew some 
famous people thought I was talented, but not enough to be asked to write the whole right. album. Mm. Um, and he said, I got a vibe that you were put here to be a communicator and that ideas would flow through you. And I never had that awareness. And I just got chills. Yeah, it was it was unbelievable. Like, he saw something in me that I had zero wow. awareness of. That is what, so, That was one of my questions, is who in your life believed in you and maybe you didn't even see it in yourself? Well, Maurice White, definitely. Wow. Definitely. And, and definitely other people along the way. But had it not been for him, those other people probably wouldn't ever have even been exposed to me. Wow. Yeah, so that was that was pretty amazing. So Now, awesome. I know we want to kind of get into, like, the current state of, like, the music in- industry and, like, the, the future of music and even, like, music in... in, in oh, Jesus <laughs> Christ. <laughs> okay, and this is, like, that number that I blocked 1,000 times. Okay. Uh, so before we kind of get into that, kind of on this pr- track, you know... You you're gonna you've said that you're gonna hear no like tw- like tw- twelve thousand more times yeah, than yes absolutely so once this part of your career hit was it pretty much not s- totally smooth sailing but were there still hurdles and also like what kind of has emerged on the other side of like great disappointments in life um, okay first of all it was anything but smooth sailing <laughs> really you know from the outside. Right. No, from the outside, it, it looks fantastic. It, sure. And when you talk to everyone, it never is. And I think that's so important for people to realize when yeah. you're having a hard time yourself. If you are someone, as many of my peers that I came up with, if it's all about just having hit records and writing one song after another after another, it would have been the greatest period in my life. But instead... Because, first of all, I was always a very visual person. I lived visually, I expressed myself visually. And when you're a songwriter, you are so hidden. Mm, uh, you know, right. and once you turn your song over to someone, it can turn into a completely different right. animal. Yeah. So for me, <laughs> the more success I had, the more frustrating it became. Uh, because you're only expressing this, you know, a teeny-weeny little mm-hmm. amount. Um and you don't have the creative control. And in my case, what happened, because I was writing, uh, or that I hit with Earth, Wind & Fire, people always assumed I was just the lyricist. And in many of those songs, I was just the lyricist. Certainly not all of them. Not Boogie Wonderland, that was uh, music and lyrics, uh, with my co-writer, John Lynn. And I love co-writing, I love collaborating, but I love when everyone does everything. So I started being sent a lot of tracks. This was the very early days of people doing that, where people would just write music and then right. say, here, put you know lyrics to it. Right. So at first it was fun because I was getting over 100 songs cut a year. So I was a machine. I mean, <laughs> I wrote three, four songs a day. Wow. And in many cases, like I wrote with Stevie Wonder to this day, I've never met Stevie Wonder. I was just, everyone was sending me their shit. <laughs> and it was fun at first, but most times, you know, minimum two-thirds of the time, it was like, oh, my God, this music is so, like, oh. So I was writing to things I didn't believe in. Mm-hmm. Um 
I, you know, when you're writing for someone else, they want a certain kind of song. So you're writing about the same thing over and over again. And I prided myself on being a really distinctive lyricist. Mm. And I thought, what am I throwing away these great thoughts on music that no one's ever going to hear? If you're lucky, it'll be an album cut. But nine times out of ten, especially in those days, they were asking every songwriter in town, maybe not, maybe they weren't giving the tracks to them, but they were asking them to submit songs. So you could write eight, nine songs for an artist and end up with zero on an album real easy. Mm -hmm. Um, So it made me really hate songwriting. uh, And it made me really resent that songwriters had no kind of union, no... Someone could say, oh, this song is great, I'm going to put a hold on it, hold it for four years, never do anything with it. You haven't received any money. The song has been, like, off the market. Um, And then by the time you get it back, because you know they're not going to do it, you don't care about the song anymore. So the inequities for songwriters were so huge. So I was in constant uh, creative turmoil, Mm. almost from the second the Earth, Wind & Fire stuff hit. Mm. And then it culminated two two years later, like 1981, where I realized I care more about songwriters' rights than I care about writing, you know, the songs. And I love music, but it's not enough. And I didn't know what it was. But 1981 to 1983, when I finally got a clue, it was constant trauma, despite the fact that I was... um, literally one of the hottest songwriters, you know, that that Mm -hmm. there was. Um, I remember the Bee Gees got, it was the year after, like, Saturday Night Fever. So they were winning, like, all the awards. And I came in second to the Bee Gees in terms of how many songs, you know, of mine got cut. Oh, my God. Um, But really miserable. And then in 1983, it was this classic, uh, it was, like, pouring outside and thundering and I'm like oh god what am I doing I hate this uh, and uh, Manhattan Transfer which was oh, a yeah. big group back in the day um, I had been friends with them they uh, had asked me to write to take a there was an average white band song called Pick Up the Pieces that mm-hmm. not Pick Up the Pieces that was the second one. Uh, it was a Spyrogyra song called Shaker Song mm-hmm. that had been a huge instrumental, like a number one record. And they wanted me to put lyrics to it. And it was really hard to do because they wanted the whole song to be different, kind of almost no repeats. And what do you do with something called the Shaker Song? What does that <laughs> mean? So I wrote it with a guy named David Lasley. It took us forever. It was four single-spaced pages of lyrics by the time we were done and we made sense of it it's like he can't shake her mm-hmm. so um anyway it was this we were really proud of it they had kind of a hit with it and then they said in 1981 okay do the same thing with pick up the pieces the average white band song and i was having a birthday party that week and i thought oh this is gonna like fuck it up because i have to now write this long you know, thing again, fill in every lyric to every note, no repeats. 
And it ruined the birthday weekend, ruined the party because I had a deadline on the song. And when I handed in the song, they said, oh, this is great, but we just wanted the chorus. So it's like, no, this was so typical that no one, songwriters just constantly got taken Mm. advantage of. Um, And that's when I went, I've got to find something else. That actually was 81, 83, which, and it was every minute of every day, still writing, but going, I'm not happy, I'm not Mm. happy. Um, And uh, in 83, the rainstorm's happening. I had painted my bathroom that day, and I had this big thing of pink paint, you know, big can, and I had the painter's paper down on the floor, and I had, um, uh, you know, I'm a collector. That's my probably mm-hmm. what I do more than anything. And uh, I had found that day a whole box of Ebony and Life magazines. Mm-hmm. So I had like 50 of these. And a big box of vintage television knobs. You know, the great old plastic right. dials. And uh, some paint had dropped down on the painter's uh, paper. And so I just took the, the toilet brush, which was the only brush that was in there, and I, like, just swirled it around into a big circle. And then I took, like, more paint, and I did another circle. And then I took the TV knobs, and I put them on as eyes. And I kind of just kept going and thinking, like, don't stop. This is the first time you've been creative where you're not aware of the rules. You, you know, this is just fun. Like, I hadn't had fun songwriting in so long. And, um... I was writing at that time with one of the Go-Go's, Jane Weedlin, the guitar player. Mm-hmm. And we had very similar tastes. We would, you know, collect really similar things. And so I had the piece up. I taped it on the wall in my living room. And she came in the next day and said, like, where, where did you get that? You know, so I ended up selling my first piece wow. that day. And I actually didn't sell it to her, but she commissioned me. To do something. And then I kind of had a built-in audience because everyone worked at my house because I had a really still, cool Mm -hmm. studio. Um, And every time someone came in, and this was the 80s, so people were buying art and, you know, doing all this stuff. Um, So started selling the art, which took the pressure off of the music. But at my very first opening, which was a group show... It was, you know, very quiet, tasteful art gallery, and they're sipping wine and eating little cheese cubes. <laughs> and it's like, I'm a party thrower. And, uh, you know, I'm, I you know, write pop music, and this is too quiet. So I realized I had, that's an epiphany. That was a huge epiphany, standing out on the sidewalk, looking in and going, oh, my God, I have to combine the music Mm. with the art. Right. And so I went and I found like a uh, kind of engineer carpenter type and I started motorizing the pieces. Um, I would, you know, like people and buildings and dogs and, you know, I'd cut all this stuff out and he would put gears on everything. And I would basically tell the stories of my songs like what these songs mm-hmm. meant to me because when i would see videos that other people would do of my songs it's like what do they think these songs are about right you know? wow so neutron dance that was the oh, very first motorized sister. one oh, i okay. did 
And then I did Boogie Wonderland. I did my Pet Shop Boys. What have I done to deserve this? And they were huge. They were like 10 feet. Some of them weighed like over a thousand pounds. I so. love that. Those moments like where you kind of were re-inspired or could feel that energy inside you again. Yeah, it was it's such unplanned. a relief. Like you couldn't have planned no. that and paint it, spell. And it came out of a period of like literally feeling dead. Yeah. Wow. So. I, I, I love... I'm sorry you went through that, but I love to hear that because it just reminds you you could walk out the door today and yeah. something that you didn't change. and it will change you. Yeah. And I know we were talking before and you had like a really great question kind of going off of the same thing where when someone else uh, takes your song. And right. Yeah. And um, it's your rings say soul. And yeah. I remember um, uh probably maybe about a year or two ago when Lionel Richie was talking about in defense of um, white performers and artists who were being um, branded with cultural appropriation yes. and whatnot. Yeah. And it occurred to me that like many of the songs that we um, love and, and sing that are performed by black artists are often written by diverse groups of people, yeah. if not uh, someone who's not a person of color or who's white. And does the songwriter get to not get caught up in the debate of cultural appropriation? Or like, where do you fall on that whole? Um, well, I'm a prime example of someone who I think has been examined a lot in right. that area. Um, and from what I can tell, I have like passed all the you know, test. <laughs> uh, but people, especially now, people talk to me about this yeah. a lot. Um, do you guys know Marsha Music? Marsha Battle Philpot, do you know her? No. She's a Detroiter. Okay. Um, she's pretty phenomenal. She has a, a music, or not a music blog, just a blog that she writes. Uh, she was married to David Philpot. Do you know? He I know the just name. Just passed away. Like a couple of weeks ago, really famous artist mm -hmm. uh, moved here from um, Chicago, and uh, b b look her up. She's okay, pretty yeah. incredible. She's an unbelievable writer, very sensitive. Did to, she review your one woman show? Yeah, I read that. Yeah, and, and uh, well, she reviewed or, the one woman show and um, the premiere party I had for my Detroit project yep. at the uh, uh, DIA. And really comes at it from the point of view of, like, don't touch our culture. Right. And w why, th she didn't say it in this way, but basically, why do I get a pass? And at this uh, Color Purple panel that we did a few nights ago, one of the audience, you know, members asked, how do you feel about uh, a white person writing a black show? Like uh, George Gershon wrote, Courtney right. and Bess. Right. To me, one of the greatest things, like, ever. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, someone like me, all my breaks have come from black people, not white people. Um, I grew up, when I tell you, idolizing Motown. Growing up as a kid in Detroit in the 1960s, when Motown was coming up, it felt like it was in my blood. Mm. And and all kids, I think, everyone in Detroit in the 1960s, you felt an attachment to right. Motown. But there was something biological for me about it. And 
I would sit out on the lawn in in front of motel. My parents would drop me off, or I would when I finally got my license come down, and literally I would just sit there. It was it was like seeping up, you know, from the ground, and you could hear the music leaking out of the walls of the little house, mm-hmm. and um, I just always felt an affinity for black culture. Um, found my acceptance there. Um, Felt it in a way that it felt authentic enough to other um, black people who were doing this incredible work and somehow allowed me to come in, like Earth, Wind & Fire, like, you know, Color Purple. So I feel, um, and the appropriation thing, I, I feel that I have proven myself to be authentic enough. Right. But I do spot it a lot mm. in mm. other um, people, and it's a genuine thing from their end. They're not just going right. It's never intentional. Yeah, they love you know what it is, right? But they haven't necessarily immersed themselves in the lifestyle enough. The first thing to me, the first difference in the cultures was the whole black family spirit. Mm-hmm. That was incredible. When I started getting invited to, like, family picnics and barbecues and parties, it was like, oh, my God, (laughs) what have we missed, you know? Um, Unbelievable. So, um, but I, those words that Maurice White said to me, those to me ring true. um, That he wasn't looking at me as a white person or a black person. Um, he just felt that whatever the message that he felt he was put on earth to disseminate, and he definitely felt that way, um, that I was someone who could help him in that, that mission. So to me, it just all feels natural. Yeah. But, uh, you know, these days, especially it's come up more than it has in Mm -hmm. the past. Yeah. I also think, um, I'm curious to learn about what you think of the future of music in Detroit. Yeah. And what is it going to take to get more people to create music here, to stay here? Do you now, do artists still need to go out to L.A.? Like, how can we, what can we do here in Detroit to... Well, uh, okay, first of all, I, you know, Detroit... Um, oh, Detroit is always given credit for Motown. Um, people say, you know, techno. But Detroit is and always has been an incredibly primal music city. And I feel it today, as much as I felt it Mm. during the Motown days. Hmm. Um, I'm close with the guys at Assemble Sound. Yeah. And, you know, people refer to them a lot as the white Motown. Um, In that they're taking this very organic approach to... um, it's really a top-down thing. It's not just uh, that they find the talent, that they can record there, that they produce them, that they make people collaborate. Um, I think that's a very Detroit thing, thinking about it kind of globally mm-hmm. like that. But the amount of music that's come out of here in the different genres of music mm-hmm. uh, and how many things started here. I mean, punk started here. Rarely gets credit for it, but right. it did. Um, uh, you know, electronica, techno, uh, all kinds of black music. So to me, 
Detroit is in another golden age. Mm. And I think it's great that the world has finally, after 40, 50 years, started to think of Detroit in general as a hot town again. And to me, music can lead the way in the same way that it did in the 60s when, you know, yes, uh, you know, cars were hot here, design was hot here. Uh, and there was a, so much focus on Detroit. It was the fourth wealthiest city in the United States at that right. point. And, you know, the nickname was, you know, the Paris of the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember as a kid, people, you know, telling me they lived in New York, you know, in Manhattan. I was like, Puh, who cares? <laughs> you know, it's, that's like some hick town compared right. to Detroit. And I feel like that is happening here now. Mm-hmm. So I think um, it's a great time for everything in Detroit, but that music absolutely I love that. Yeah. And I love that you said it's a city full of revolutionaries and it's the most oh, soulful yeah. city in the world. Absolutely the most soulful city in the in the world. Um, and that I felt um, even more so in the years when it was really rough in Detroit, which was really up until, what, two, two years ago? Right. You know, where no one was giving Detroit credit, you know, for anything. And the people that stuck with the city, and many... In many cases, they didn't have a choice but to stick with the city. Um, And, you know, I I would always tell my friends, like, Detroit is so great. You know, come with me. And they go, are you kidding? (laughs) You know, they didn't want to come back like, you know, dead. And (laughs) every time I would get someone to come here, they would absolutely fall in love with it because of the people. Right. Because everyone they met was laughing and smiling, and there still was a spirit here. Mm. And to have that spirit after everything that happened to this city, uh, that is true soul. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I love that. That's great. That's, I mean, you summed it up perfectly, and, like, that's the, those are the people we talk like we talk to as well. Yeah, that that aren't giving up, and when things are super down, you're still smiling. And yeah, I mean, what everyone needs to understand about being down is that that's where the opportunity is. Mm. It is not when you are up. <laughs> Um, I always used to say this. This is before I had so good. Before I had a more global view about this, I I used to. It was when I was still. um, I was starting to do the art, but you know the music was still going. But I didn't have faith in myself anymore. I didn't really like what was coming out. But I realized when I had a hit, I wasn't hot when the hit was out. I was hot. When I was writing the hit, right. which was in a, from the outside, you you would perceive it as a low point for me. Like, you know, because you didn't have a number one song on the radio. But yet that's when you were writing the song that was going to be number one two years from then or something. So I really tried to calm myself down in periods that felt very slow mm-hmm. because you don't know if what you're writing is going to be valued by anyone or not. So right. you had to keep so the good. faith. And that really helped, you know, period. Like now, I'm not haunted by any of the stuff that I felt haunted by 
for 30 years. But what's interesting to me is I see my peers, because a lot of my friends, we all hit at the same time, that if they weren't examining themselves way back then, now is when they're in the torture period. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, they're older. They're not valued the way that they were. They still want to be actively doing it, but you're replaced by, you know, people 40 years younger. Whereas someone like me who constantly um, was evaluating where they were mentally through the whole thing. And when I had a chance, that's always what I would be writing about or whatever I was, you know, creating, was examining. Um, Now it's like I don't feel like any of that stuff touches me. Do you wish you weren't so hard on yourself in those moments? Are you happy the way I'm absolutely happy because I never would have gotten to where Where I am, which is incredibly satisfied, even though I don't feel like I've made it the way that I want to Sometimes it it just takes time. But yeah, but well, yeah, sometimes it takes, you know, I used to say, oh, okay, by the time I'm 40, it's going to happen. Then you go, by the time I'm 50, now I'm saying 90. It's like, oh my God. Well, I, I, I mean, I want to go get another coffee. Yeah. Um, I don't, we, well, we're going to have to have a round two. Um, uh, yeah, fine. And the, the question we, so I, two just kind of quick questions to wrap this up. Where do you, can you paint the picture of Detroit in 10 years? What do you see the city like in 10? First of all, I think architecturally it's going to be gorgeous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to see neighborhoods like my old neighborhood get paid a lot more attention to, which was, I went to Mumford. Okay. So, um, kind of, um, at that point, it was Northwest Detroit. That's yeah. What, you know. Um, uh, I think that it's it's always attracted a lot of artists, but I think that now it kind of has its legitimacy back. I think that's going to get pushed even farther. Mm. So, I think it's just going to be, um, I, I think it is now, but I think it will be recognized more. Mm. An incredibly artistic city. Incredibly forward-thinking city. Nice. Um, and I hope, you know, out of all that come a whole lot of innovations that lead the way for the, you know, the world. Yeah. Right. And if you could have a drink with anyone in the world, who would it be? Oh, God. <laughs> I have no idea. They could be I dead or alive. I would have, oh. Now just add more people to the list. <laughs> I know as soon as I leave, I'm going to think of someone. Of course, that's this how it always goes. This is the same goes. thing. People go, what Do you want to work with? Yeah. Like? <laughs> right. I, I, my brain just goes, I have no idea. Right. Um, no, I need to think about that. If I can text you the answer, that would be Oh, better. yeah. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, leave our listeners hanging. I, I will say one thing, though. <laughs> I, I was very blessed to have uh, been friends coming up with a lot of people that were much older than me but who I viewed as kind of real revolutionaries of their time. Like, I was really good friends with Timothy Leary. And um, I got to see, because I didn't meet him until he was 70 or so. Um, I got to see how someone gets to that age and still has all the vitality that they had, you know, when he was like, you know, sitting next to John and Yoko singing Let It Be, right. you know? Oh um, right. And I was always very conscious I'm going to model myself after him. Nice. Um, so um, I did get to spend a lot of time with him, and he was an absolute regular at my parties when mm-hmm. the parties first began. Yeah. Um, 
so that's not who I would choose, but it would be someone who just said, this is the kind of life I'm going to have. No one's going to take this away from me. And just, right. Cause he had a good time till the day he left. Yeah. You know, I love that. So. That's great. I'm feeling super inspired. Thank you so much for <laughs> coming pleasure. in here. Cheers again. Cheers, cheers to you and cheers to cheers. Detroit. Yes. Cheers to Detroit. <laughs> cheers. I'm Hilary Sachuk, and you've been listening to A Drink With Detroit. Big thanks to our partners, Goodwill Detroit and Detroit Foundation Hotel. Don't forget to hashtag What's Good Detroit. You can find us on social media with our handle at A Drink With. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, rate us, and write us a review. Shout out to Clay Carnell for co-producing, recording, and mixing, Derek Busman for the photography, Aaron Ben Moshe and Georgina Sego, who transcribed and edited the conversations, and DJ White Shadow for the music. You can read all the interviews with photos on adrinkwith.com. Next week, we have a drink with Rosalind Karamoko, the CEO and founder of Detroit is the New Black. I think Detroit, for me, feels like one of the last American cities where you can, like, affect real change, you know, for, for a young person to say, I have an idea and I can come here with nothing and actually build it and scale it to a real company. <laughs>